welcome. I'm Pastor Brandon, and I'm joined with Pastor Zach. We're pastors of Westside Reformed Church, and it's been our kind of hope to start a podcast that would not only discuss matters pertaining to Westside Reformed Church, but just great matters of theology and church history and apologetics that we could have some in-depth discussion on and provide a uh, weekly 20-minute kind of uh, podcast that uh, you can enjoy and share with your friends. Um, And we thought we'd kick off the podcast uh, by talking about something that is a little bit not well known in a lot of evangelical circles or something that is rejected in evangelical circles, and that is the idea of ritual. Um, So I want to kick it off to Zach and, and see... Um, how does ritual or lit- liturgy, rhythms in our Christian worship, things that we do week in, week out, they can seem mundane, but how do they um, structure our worship? Um, does God want us to, to do that? How does that? How does that work? Yeah, I think that's probably one of the questions that people have the first time they come to our church is they recognize that we use repetition and um, ritual and we have something that we call a liturgy and maybe that's a term that's foreign to you but a liturgy just means an order a way of doing things a, a way of serving the lord any church has a uh, a liturgy but i think people are very mindful of how unique our church is on that in that regard compared to what we see especially within modern uh, American evangelicalism. And so I think as we begin to think about this topic of ritual, liturgy, uh, repetition, having an order that uh, we utilize to approach God, I think probably a big question that we need to reflect on early in this conversation is, what is worship? If we believe that worship is just a performance or entertainment, well, then we can, we'll go into a very different direction. We might not view liturgy and ritual as being important at all because those things aren't going to be very exciting, entertaining, and so forth. But if we begin to think about um, worship as inherently uh, covenantal, a, a covenantal moment, a covenantal drama, you could say, between God and his people, then all of a sudden you start to move in the direction where ritual and liturgy repetition is actually very important. There are certain formalities, in other words, that we ought to observe anytime that we are engaging with someone who is a president or a king, uh, someone who's over us. Maybe there are ways of um, repetition that you might think of if you're uh, engaging with uh, a great-grandparents or a a grandparent, when you meet them and you see them, you give them the same hug and kiss on the cheek or something like that, you speak to them in a certain way. Uh, probably the most, you know, uh, easiest way of thinking about this might be if you were to visit the White House or to visit a, a, a palace. There would be certain formalities you'd undertake as you came before a king or a president or a queen. And it's sort of like that when we think about a covenantal drama between our covenant Lord and his covenant people, and that that is what worship is. So I think maybe a context we could think about would be thinking about Mount Sinai 
as a very um, a key moment in the biblical story that teaches us about worship. And I don't say Mount Sinai because I think that we are under the old covenant, that Mosaic covenant, no, not at all, but rather because Hebrews 12 tells the new covenant church that that is the pattern that we follow and that the covenantal moment that we exist in within worship is actually greater than, even to a certain degree more terrifying than, what was observed um, at Mount Sinai. Although we have a better covenants and greater promises and so forth, there's still this heavenly reality, this heavenly transaction that occurs when we um, gather before the Lord uh, in, holy, in holy worship. So I think that kind of sets us up maybe to begin thinking about repetition and liturgy as covenantal realities. Um, you know, Brandon, I know you're from a, um, uh, more recently from an evangelical background than I am, although I was certainly in that uh, world for quite some time. But uh, I wonder if you wouldn't mind um, telling us a bit about your own background and how you grappled with worship. I know you've told, it, told me about it before, but maybe to tell our audience how you wrestled with the idea of repetition and worship and liturgy. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, it is something that is, uh, in a lot of evangelical circles, rejected. It looks Roman Catholic. It looks something that is, I don't know, um, kind of rigid or dead. Even, you know, I heard one pastor uh, talk about Reformed worship, and he said, you know, it's just dead. And, and so that's kind of the idea, I think, behind, you know, when people see liturgy, ritual, rhythms, and uh, dialogue that you're doing each and every week, um, they can think it's like a, something that's dead. And so I kind of encountered that when I was pastoring a Baptist church, um, that didn't really have a kind of a weekly structured thing that we did. And so I implemented things like a call to worship, uh, a benediction, responsive readings, uh, different prayers. And so kind of giving the same structure each and every week. And the way that I did it was I would, I would try to teach through it. So I would, uh, I began every year on a, on a topic that I wanted um, the church to really kind of wrestle with and understand. And so one of those years uh, uh, in the pastorate, I entered and we started talking about worship and I had a whole series of just, here is what the elements of worship are, here is the principles of worship. And we talked about the the dialogue in, in, in worship. And it's interesting, as you read the Bible, you see uh, in various places, in Exodus, in uh, Nehemiah, um, even in the book of Revelation, Revelation 4 and 5, you see that there is a kind of orderly, liturgical, back-and-forth dialogue where people are saying the same things together, doing the same postures together, responding in the same ways together. And I think a lot of people are struck by the orderliness of the holy conversation that is happening in worship, not only on earth, not only in the Old Testament, not only in the New Testament, but also in 
the heavenly worship that we get glimpses of in Revelation 4 and chapter 5. One of the ways that I broached the topic of ritual um, specifically was I started talking about how, kind of like what you said with grandparents, we all have a ritual. Uh, a lot of us have a daily ritual. I mean, I get up and I kind of do the same basic things every day. I get my coffee, I get breakfast, I get the kids going, we uh, start our day, you know, and, and we just kind of have the same pattern that we do day in and day out. And so ritual is not automatically a scary thing. It's not automatically a, a, a negative thing. It's something that we all, all have, we all do. And um, so when it comes to worship, I guess the question is, do you have a good ritual mm -hmm. or do you have a bad ritual? Um, you could have elements in worship, elements that were that might be not good and that you would have to purge. And also ritual could be approached um, in a more legalistic fashion. Maybe somebody's thinking, I'm going to go through this uh, outward ritual and somehow I'm going to earn this or I'm going to merit this or, you know, that there can be bad hearts as we enter um, ritual or dialogue in, in, in worship, but not automatically so. And when we, again, go to the biblical text, we see a beautiful, orderly conversation in worship, a holy back and forth in worship where um, God speaks and his people respond. God speaks, his people respond. Um, and I think that, that that structure is not only biblical, but it has a lot of practical benefits for the church as well. And so I, I tried to, as I was kind of leading the church to adopt more of a liturgical worship, I was trying to hone in on some of those practical benefits of having um, having a liturgy, having a ritual that we're doing uh, week in, week out. And so, Zach, I know, you know you've been pastoring Westside Reformed Church for seven years now, yeah. and so you've um, uh, been liturgical. Um, you've been uh, worshiping probably in the, the same way for all seven years. And so um, you've probably had a lot of time to see the benefits of that flesh out. Do you want to talk about some of those benefits or uh, things that you've seen in the lives of your people uh, who have sat under that kind of holy conversation, a holy dialogue week in, week out? Yeah, certainly. I think that. So Brandon's point earlier, the idea of ritual and repetition can seem like pure mechanics and you're just going through the motions and that certainly this can't be as helpful and beneficial as having a real uh, emotional experience on a Sunday. But there really are some amazing uh, benefits I've, I've observed, um, other benefits that I'm convinced uh, are accomplished through a good biblical liturgy. Again, we're not just talking about mere liturgy because there are good liturgies and there are bad liturgies. <laughs> there's a good order of approaching God and there can be a bad order. And then there's much in between. But I think that if we're thinking about a good order for approaching God, there are great, uh, great benefits for it. I think one um, thing that I would point to is that when you utilize um, repetition in a good order, you begin to establish a, 
helpful vocabulary as a Christian. Certain words, certain phrases that are oftentimes just biblical quotations come very readily to your mind. And to, to utilize the Lord's Prayer regularly in worship helps to shape, I would hope, our prayer lives because we begin to focus our prayer more on God's glory, hallowed be your name, rather than just coming with a whole list of I want this, I want this, I want this. And so those kinds of things like utilizing a, a prayer that's been written down and has been tested and reflected upon for generations, again, helps to give us a, a, a vocabulary for how we should approach God and what kinds of words we should use before God. We don't address him like he's our boyfriend. We don't speak to him like he's just a buddy or a pal that we you know, go to um, just hang out with. But there's a, a way of speaking to someone who is holy and transcendent above us. So, you know, a vocabulary, I think, is very um, important to establish. And I think that I've seen that in our church. I also think that we can forget that children should be part of worship. And we um, uh, welcome children into the church at Westside Reformed Church into worship. And uh, we also believe that they're members of the covenants. And we'll get to that later in a future, in a future episode. But the heritage of Christianity is not just for those who are able to read um, off of a, a projection screen or uh, for those who can read from a hymnal or something like that, but our children should be able to participate uh, as well. And so I've seen this with my own children. I think you're seeing this with your children that as we say certain things week after week, they can participate and they're excited to do so. In fact, sometimes I hear our kids screaming out louder than anyone else in our church because they know that prayer or they know that creed or something along those lines or that song. Uh, they'll shout it out because they're learning from a very early age how to be uh, worshipers, and they should be, obviously. The um, use of repetition and uh, use of a specifically a pattern for worship also helps, I think, to tether us to things that are most important in the Christian life and in the biblical message. To use the, speak of a negative example, I think that it's clear that when churches have abandoned the regular, repetitive reading of God's law in worship, that very quickly Christians stop thinking about God's law, or they might believe that God's law is a bad thing for us, or they also begin to stop thinking so much about sin and that sin can easily be sidelined and marginalized that conversation about sin when we avoid that regular repetitive reading of God's law and confess confession of sin but if those are there each and every service it kind of keeps you from going after the latest fad or fashion and it re requires you to go back to the bread and butter of Christianity. And the same thing could be said about the use of creeds like the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed, that saying those each and every week brings us back again to the simplicity and the, the centrality of the gospel of uh, Jesus Christ. It's really hard to um, uh, ignore those central truths if you have them each week inside your order of service. 
Um, a few of the things I'd probably mention in terms of some benefits would be one, I, I think that when we utilize things week after week, it creates um, a very deep memorization. You could almost say like a um, muscle memory, something like that, to where that deep memorization is something where if you're in a circumstance that's um, frightening, maybe you are in a hospital bed, or maybe, you know, God forbid, you are someday persecuted as a Christian. Uh, maybe you're losing your mental faculties with dementia. That kind of mental muscle memory that comes with deep memorization, that enables such people who are being tortured, who are losing their ability to um, think for themselves, it actually enables them to grab hold of those um, uh, deeply memorized uh, concepts and statements and phrases. Uh, it's no secret that people from within liturgical traditions have seen this, and when they are you know, ministering to people who are losing their ability to think, but they can still remember their liturgy uh, from Sunday worship. I, I got to see that one time when I was in an end-of-life uh, situation in a hospice environment where I was reading Bible texts and I was praying with um, uh, a woman who was just at the end of her life. Um, she was struggling with bitterness, as many do. That's just normal that for many people that have dementia. And... Um, she wasn't responding or engaging with much of what I was saying and reading and praying. But then I just recited for her the um, benediction from Numbers chapter 6. The Lord bless you and keep you and so forth. And then it was at that moment where all of a sudden she became lucid. And you could tell that she connected with me at that moment. And she um, said afterward, wasn't that the most beautiful thing you've ever heard? But that was because I was tapping into, unknowingly at the time, I was tapping into her deep, uh, deep memory um, and memorization. I think there are a couple more things that could be said. I'm just wondering if you have any initial thoughts on that, Brandon. No, I, I, think that's, to... I think that's right on. Um, I think that's spot on. I think that it forms a vocabulary, like you said, when we're praying you know, liturgical prayers from our Forms and Prayers book. They still typically pray the exact same prayer for dinner, the exact same prayer for bedtime, uh, and so on and so forth. And so they've kind of made up their own liturgical prayer because they've been saying the same thing for years and years and years. But is it as rich and glorifying and shaping as some of these other ones that we could be saying? Um, and not only are they rich and beautiful in themselves, but they connect us to other Christians because... Um, I know that I'm saying these prayers. Um, I, I know that um, uh, Zach's family is saying those prayers. Other um, churches in our federation are, are saying these prayers on, on Sunday. And there's a way that the liturgical prayers not only grow us, but also unify us, I think. Yeah, and I, I think that one thing that probably needs to be clarified is that liturgical prayers aren't the, um, where we stop. But it really helps us to start praying. And I think that's what Brandon was getting at with about getting us, giving us a vocabulary. Because after I pray a liturgical prayer, I actually want to keep praying. <laughs> and I want to pray about particular things that are particular and specific to my life. 
I think that those prayers become richer and more meaningful as I develop a vocabulary. And there can be times where I just don't want to pray. But what I see in myself is that when I'm actually in my own daily life, utilizing liturgical prayers or repetition, it actually encourages me to be praying more spontaneously throughout the day because I have entered into that frame of mind. And I think that's what we could say about Sunday worship as well, that it's not only repetition and liturgical prayers, but those things are a place for us to begin. And they give us the vocabulary to continue, to then speak um, on our own. You know, with the Lord's Prayer, Jesus told the disciples in one place, uh, pray this. And then the other uh, instance of the Lord's Prayer, he said, pray like this. And so it's both and. We can use the Lord's Prayer, then we can form our other prayers to it uh, as well. And also I was going to just um, insert too, a lot of the liturgical prayers that are in here will actually have a space where it'll be like, you know, insert prayer requests yeah, here, right. insert something going on here. And so there's a spot within the, the, the prayer where you just ad lib or, you know, spontaneous, whatever is going on in your life, you, yeah. you, you pray. Yeah, exactly. You know, one thing that uh, Brian said earlier that I wanted to touch on a little bit more is just the, the way that uh, worship and liturgy uh, forms us. It shapes us. He, he mentioned that each of us have our own daily liturgy. He mentioned having coffee in the morning. I have the exact same one. If I don't, that's a problem for me. I probably need to think about cutting back a little bit. But we have patterns of life that we undertake. And some of those patterns are helpful and some of them are not. We might have a pattern of getting home from work and just clicking on the TV, kicking up our feet, and then becoming lazy. That's a bad pattern. That's a bad uh, liturgy you could say, for your life. Uh, I remember hearing um, uh, a lecture sometime in the past, I forget who gave it, but he was trying to explain how to become a more successful person. And he said the very first thing you should do if you want to be a more successful person is make your bed in the morning. Because again, he wants to encourage good repetition uh, throughout your day and accomplishing and being successful with particular steps in your life. And so that's one way of doing that. So again, certain ways that we can see that just a normal life, the way that we undergo repetition and order of things can be helpful. Uh, but it's very much the same sort of thing with Christian worship. That when we think about the way that's under um, uh, coming before the Lord and hearing his word and then responding to his word in an appropriate way, um, th that sort of a thing is formative for us. It shapes who we are. It shapes our character. Because in Adam, we are people who did not respond to God's word appropriately. Uh, God gave Adam that command to not eat the fruit from that particular tree in the garden. He disobeyed that word. He obeyed a different word. And from that moment onward, because of original sin, we become people, create, create, uh, creatures who do not respond to God's word as we should. But then when we come into worship and then as we enter into a dialogue with God, and as we hear his word come to us, and then as that order of service teaches us to then with body, with our heart, with our voice, to respond appropriately, we begin to be shaped. 
to begin to hear God's law and understand that when we hear God's law, we should confess our sins. And when we hear God's law, we should seek to obey it with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. When we hear God's gospel, we should obey it, or we should, pardon me, uh, believe it and uh, um, uh, cling to it and receive it by faith. And these kinds of things, uh, to respond to God's word with praise and with thanksgiving, those are very uh, shaping things for us. It shapes our character. It shapes who we are. Um, I can look at uh, people in our church and our own my own children even, and see that uh, their approach to God is shaped by what they hear on Sundays. And their prayers are shaped by what they do on Sundays and, and so forth. So just like someone might tell you to become more successful, make your bed, mm-hmm. get yourself off on the right foot in the morning. Mm-hmm. That's the kind of thing we might think about, spiritually speaking, with an, with an order of service. Um, you know, a final thing, unless you want to jump in there, yeah. uh, Brandon, to probably the biggest um, objection to this kind of thing might be people's desire for spontaneity, mm. um, some sort of novelty in, uh, in worship. And I want to just uh, read uh, here from um, C.S. Lewis. I'm just going to kind of paraphrase from him uh, one of his texts called Letters to Malcolm where he speaks about the importance of repetition and ritual over against uh, spontaneity and uh, novelty. And he describes about how it is that novelty and spontaneity actually inhibit worship. And they make it very hard for us to worship. And so let's just hear this from uh, C.S. Lewis. He said that um, novelty simply, as such, can have only an entertainment value. And we don't go to church to be entertained. We go to enact the service. Every service is a structure of acts and words through which we receive a sacrament, or repent, or supplicate, or adore. And worship is best enacted when, through long familiarity, we don't have to think about it. He goes on to speak about dancing. And the person that truly dances is someone that doesn't have to think about the steps any longer. They just know the movement. And then they're, they're free within that structure to just enjoy uh, dancing. And I spoke to someone else who um, was talking about the same kind of thing about playing a musical instrument. The once that he begins to memorize a piece of music, that's the moment where he can most fully enjoy it and celebrate it and embody it. But he first needs to know the order of things. Lewis goes on to say that the perfect church service would be one we were almost unaware of. Our attention would have been on God. But every novelty prevents this. It fixes our attention on the service itself. And thinking about the worship is a different thing from worshiping. So uh, that's a uh, quote I came across quite some time ago. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was very impactful for me at the time. I go back to it quite uh, regularly. Just to be mindful about that. that our, our focus in worship is really to be on God. And, but as we do come before God and focus on God, we need to make sure we're doing it in the right way. Mm-hmm. So God doesn't reject our worship. Right.
But I'm kind of wondering, Brandon, you know, we've brought up a lot of things that are probably objectionable to many people. Um, you've already addressed some of those kinds of object objections as you've talked about your own biography. I wonder if you might have any other thoughts you might want to leave our um, viewers and listeners with. Yeah, sure. Um, I would say that there's at least three big um, misconceptions when you talk about liturgy, when you talk about ritual. Um, one of those is a misunderstanding of worship, I think. Um, <clears throat> I think a lot of people um, um, ask the wrong questions. You know, they, they approach worship and they, and they ask the questions, first and foremost, what do I like? Or first and foremost, what do the people here like? Or what do lost people like? You know, and we're, we're not asking the question, what does God like? Um, now, we'll probably get into this in a um, future podcast, but I think it's worth mentioning, you know, God shows us in his word what worship looks like and how he wants to be worshipped. And one of the, the, the things that we see in worship in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, in heaven, is a an orderly covenantal dialogue between uh, the Creator and his covenant people. Uh, the second thing um, I would say that's a misconception is a lot of people think that when the Holy Spirit works, he works without structure or form. And so when the Spirit's here, it's kind of a free, a static, um, probably not chaotic. I don't know if I want to use that word. Now, I think it can, in some manifestations, look chaotic when you look at a church. But uh, a lot of people think that forms, structures, kind of, that's too imprisoning for the Spirit. Um, but we have to remember that the Spirit is the one who gave us the Word and gave us those structures um, that uh, we see um, His covenant people, Old Testament, New Testament, and in heaven, worshiping. Um, and I would say the third and final uh, thing I'll mention about the misconceptions are um, people don't realize that how you worship is impacting on how you believe. Mm -hmm. uh, not only what you believe impacting how you worship, but it's, it, it, it's, it's the other way too. How you worship impacts how you believe. You, you are being catechized by the structure of your worship, by the rituals, the liturgy of your worship. You are being catechized, shaped, molded. And so the question is, do you have a structure, a ritual, a rhythm that is going to um, catechize you well, grow you well? Or do you have something that's going to get you off astray? Uh, because sometimes we, we do things in in worship, or we could do things in worship, that could lead us astray, even though we might not say it, or we might not mean to do it, but it could take us in the wrong direction in our spiritual lives. So we need to be careful, I think. So those are, I think, three big misconceptions that people um, might not realize when they're thinking about issues of ritual and, and, and these, these kind of things. Um, but to close this off, Zach, uh, you know, if there's someone out there and they're thinking, I want more information on this, I want to delve deeper into this, I'm really interested, I want to worship God the way He wants to be worshipped, what are some, some places or some texts, books that you would take them to? Yeah, sure. Uh, I think the first place I would send you would be to the book that Brandon's been mentioning, Forms and Prayers. You can find actually all of these, all of the um, liturgical forms and liturgical prayers at formsandprayers.com. You can also buy this for only $4. 
That's a great commission publication. That's gcp.org. A couple of the books, if you want to go a little bit deeper um, into this, into the theory behind things, uh, With Reverence and Awe by uh, Hart and Meether is a very helpful book that speaks about uh, an order of service. Also, another one in a similar vein would be a book by Michael Horton called A Better Way. You want to think a little bit about uh, history and how worship has been structured in um, uh, the Christian church. A book by Hughes Oliphant Old called Worship, Reformed According to Scripture. And also this big hefty book, Reformation Worship, edited by uh, Gibson and Erngay. I'm not sure how you say his last name. is <laughs> another really great book, but this uses a lot of primary uh, source texts from the Reformation itself to show how the Reformers thought about worship and structuring order of service when they were bringing the church back to the teaching of Holy Scripture and to the pattern of worship that we find within the church fathers as well. So there'll be a few places that I would send people to. Awesome. Well, that was um, super, super helpful. And hopefully this first uh, podcast was uh, encouraging and helpful for you as well. Um, Cincy Reform Podcast is a podcast of Westside Reform Church. Uh, you can visit us at westsidereform.org, um, or you can visit us at 10 a.m. on Sundays. Um, have a blessed week.